Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. First of all, I want to say a big thank you to everybody who has contributed to our Gaza fundraiser. It's been really uplifting and heartwarming to see so many people chipping in and to get to see the impact it's had on the people in tents in Rafa who are struggling under the most horrendous of situations. And just to see the, the little handwritten notes thanking our listeners for the support and what it means to people in Gaza. I can't thank you all enough. But as awkward as that is, I do need to ask you to help keep this show on the road. The only way we keep going is if you click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise It is at the top of the podcast you're listening to right now. We've no ads. We've no sponsors. We need you to chip in, pay it forward and keep the show on the road. The five quid you're giving us helps us carve out the space we need to continue to have conversations that you don't hear enough of in much of the mainstream and to do the activism that really matters. So come on board, join our little community, and help keep the show on the road. Enjoy the show. Hello everyone, and welcome to the first episode of PALCAST, the first episode of our second season. We just concluded our first season. We had 23 uh, episodes the exact number of short stories uh, published and edited by our great friend, poet and mentor, Rifat al Ar'ir, who was murdered uh, in Gaza uh, uh, on October uh, on December um, 6th. Uh, we're very excited to launch the um, uh, new, uh, you know, uh, um, episodes and the new season of Palcast uh, in collaboration with Just Word Educational, our great um, co-host, Helena Coban and of course uh, our great producer uh, Tony Graves from uh, Dublin, the Eco Chamber um, podcast. Uh, we're very delighted um, to to have our uh, uh, guest joining us from Toronto, Doctor uh, Yohiki Maeli, uh, who's an assistant professor of Indigenous politics at the Department of Political Science, uh, University of of Toronto. We will talk about Palestine. And Hawaii, I was uh, very honored to visit uh, Hawaii back in 2019, uh, where I met our great um, guest. Uh, it was a uh, speaking tour, again, facilitated by uh, Just Word Educational in collaboration with our friends and folks, uh, Cynthia Franklin in, in Hawaii. Uh, very, very nice to, to, to have you and welcome to PALCAST. Aloha, welcome. Everyone to season two, mahalo for having me, Yusuf, Helena, and Tony. Um, it's a great honor to be here and reciprocate in a way that I can right now with you, especially Yusuf, after uh, meeting, like you said, in 2019 in November at Mauna Kea. Um, it was a great honor to be present when you, Rana Berakat, professor at Birzit University, Cynthia Franklin, professor at the University of Hawaii, long time um, advocate for Palestinian human rights and freedom and liberation for Palestine, as well as um, Kanaka Maoli scholar Kehalani Kawanui, um, uh, interlocutor of Cynthia Franklin's um, longtime enduring supporter of Palestine. It's an honor to be here. Mahalo. Thank you, absolutely. Um, Helena and, and Antonia, I would like to invite you to say a few words. You know, this is the opening of our second season of Palcast. And uh, I think it would be great if you jump in and say a few words. Go ahead, Helena. After oh no, la lady, ladies first. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, if there were a lady here, she would. But anyway, here I am. So, yeah, I'm really thrilled to have this uh, second season going up um, and to have uh, Wahikea with us today. Very important to have that kind of indigenous solidarity, including from Tony, who is an indigenous Irish person. They were the first people colonized by the English. So here I am, like... As always, apologize. We, we have to. We have to get you to stop but, doing that. Like honestly, I I think we're friends now, Helena. You don't well, need to keep apologizing. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but really, you know, it's going to be a, a, an important season for us. A lot is 
going to carry on happening in Gaza and the rest of Palestine. I hope that later on in today's episode, we can talk a little bit about what's been happening at the International Court of Justice in The Hague and at the UN Security Council. But I'm going to turn it over to you, I Tony. Ju- I just um, want to say again, thanks for inviting me to be part of this project. And then finally, that we will be moving to maybe a longer form conversation whereby we will endeavour to have guests each week, but we'll also talk about some of the topics that are happening because we've all got friends and family and people that we know, uh, loved 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 ones in Gaza. So we will obviously continue to try and talk about that, but we will be only doing probably only once a week going forward unless something, unless other um, news comes that we have to jump in and, and do some sort of emergency pods but we will be coming into it in, in, in a different structure than that but thank you to everybody who has listened shared liked and recommended to other people it all makes a difference so really appreciate it back to uh, back to our great host and leader Yusuf thank you Tony uh, so to kick off this conversation uh, in 2019 as I mentioned I visited Hawaii and you know all people talk about the beauty of Hawaii which is very beautiful um but then there is another reality. I saw a protest in Hawaii. Uh, there were hundreds of people on Mauna Kea, which is a sacred mountain for the Kanaka Maoli, the native Hawaiians, um, who were protesting the construction of a 30-meter uh, telescope uh, built on their sacred land uh, by the University of Hawaii. And I also also a Palestinian flag. Um, could you please tell us more about you know these contrasts, like what a Palestinian flag is doing in Hawaii, and why is it there, and why do we have this protest, or why did we have this protest? Hey, mahalo for this question, Yusuf. It's a really important one. Um, first and foremost, the Palestinian flag was likely present and flying at. Mauna Kea's um, access road at about 6,000 feet elevation on Hawaii Island um, in the um, area that's known as uh, Humu'ula. Um, it's also um, a road and 6,000 feet elevation sites where um, a very large and significant uh, Highway exists that bisects the north and south of Hawaii Island. So one can travel on this highway from Hilo on the east side to the west side, Kona. Um, And this highway was actually expanded under the leadership of former U.S. Senator uh, from Hawaii, Daniel K. Inouye, under the guise to widen it so that construction of telescope observatories could be ramped up so that the transportation from one side of the island to the other to this in particular site at Mauna Kea um, could transport heavy equipment and machinery, um, these large-scale pieces of infrastructure like telescope domes, mirrors, things like that. So at 6,000 feet elevation, uh, thousands and thousands of Kanaka Maoli, uh, my people, Native Hawaiians, Indigenous Hawaiians, um, assembled to block the construction of a new telescope project, a proposed telescope project, which is called the 30-meter telescope. It's a extremely large telescope observatory, and that is the scientific name for it, extremely large telescope. Um, not very creative, if you ask me, ELT, extremely large telescope. It would be arguably one of the largest telescope observatories in the world. Um, certainly in the Northern Hemisphere, there's one that... Um, rivals it in the Southern Hemisphere in Chile. So this telescope observatory wouldn't be the first, it wouldn't be the second, it wouldn't be the third or even the tenth um, on Mauna Kea uh, at about 14,000 feet elevation. Um, It is an optical infrared telescope that would, as its scientific case suggests, be able to allow astronomers and astrophysicists, cosmologists to peer into the origins of Uh, the universe and mankind, and one of the main scientific cases for it, which makes it so superior to indigenous claims to this sacred site and mountain and um, important ecological existent to us in our um, ancestral lands and national lands of the Hawaiian kingdom, is that it can find exoplanets, which are 
planets outside the solar system that humans could one day colonize and settle. So this piece of equipment, this techno-scientific project, promises to identify habitable planets for humans outside of our solar system. The other kind of underbelly of that scientific case, which makes it so superior to all other kinds of claims, um, life as well, is that it also has the capability to collect data in order to identify extraterrestrial life, as in aliens. So ELTs of this nature are incredibly valuable to not just the scientific community, but to governments like the Canadian government, the U.S. federal government, um, and others. This project is estimated to be about $2.7 billion in cost at the end of the day, and it keeps rising every few years. Um, in so... When when I was on Mauna Kea, I saw all sorts of people standing in solidarity. Um, I saw different flags. The Palestinian flag was one of them. Um, could you please tell us more about people who decided to go there and protest and physically stop the construction of the 30-meter t- um, uh, telescope project? Yeah, so the same people that I was mentioning assembled to block this project, which is seen as a project of des- destruction and desecration, doesn't have free prior informed consent by Native Hawaiians. It's, it's a total social fact. Um, as you mentioned, Yusuf, the University of Hawaii is leasing out this particular land to the uh, corporation, the, the TMT International Corporation, and its partners are from uh, Canada, the United States, India, China, Japan. Um, Canada has invested $250 million in the project. So Kanaka Maoli that understand our material history as indigenous people belonging to the Hawaiian kingdom's nation state see this as an infringement not just on our indigenous rights and relationship to this sacred place and our cultural practices with it, but a continuation of what we see as an illegal, belligerent military occupation. The Palestinian flag was likely present um, and brought to Mauna Kea in that interlocking analysis. But primarily, um, my belief is that it was brought to Mauna Kea by Kanaka Maoli that have been to Palestine uh, in former delegations and seeking to make this not just connection in Hawaii between colonialism and military occupation, but transnationally to occupations elsewhere, to indigenous peoples and communities elsewhere as a way to build solidarity and to ensure the importance of bridging our struggles with one another. Very much a shared struggle, so. Very much a shared struggle. And we, that's the, that is one of the themes of this entire series has been one world, one struggle. Uh, and that is a phrase that was borrowed from the families of the Bloody Sunday su- survivors that took place in Derry um, over 50 years ago, now 52 years ago, and still seeking justice for what happened. So, yeah, uh, uh, it really registers and resonates with me. So thanks for sharing that. I think um, also there are similarities, you know, between um, what happened in, in Hawaii and Churchill Island and, and Palestine and Ireland and this shared history of settler colonialism, but also resistance. And um, I want to point to your piece on the Red Nation, Let Gaza Change You. And um, I want you to share with our audience, you know, the content of this article and why do you think that Gaza was able to change the hearts and the minds of of some people um, who always... um, probably stood on on, on the wrong side of history until recently. Yeah, this is a piece that I wrote um, for a variety of reasons, but at the core was to make this argument, which I believe I saw resonate in the streets here in Toronto, in Hawaii, across Turtle Island and the world, which is that the genocide in Gaza has radically transformed the psyche of a collective consciousness of 
humans to understand and to act on the utter and vile dehumanization of Palestinians and in that process open up a kind of psychic bridge to seeing a common humanity beyond what some have referred to as white Euro-American humanism. This was a really important piece for me to put out in order to pay homage to those that have come before me, like I mentioned, Cynthia Franklin, Keholani Kaunui, and others that are um, in Hawaii, Kanaka Maoli, or otherwise, whom are our leaders in building that bridge, who brought uh, a delegation of Palestinian intellectuals, thinkers, and um, practitioners, including yourself, Yusuf, and Rana, to Mauna Kea. Um, so that piece was a way for me to talk about what I was seeing on the ground, to think about the genealogy of Hawaiian-Palestinian solidarity and relationships in particular, as well as to point out the incredible deficits in what I had been seeing in early October, in November, and obviously much longer before this in regards to the gap in analysis with regard to Israel-Palestine um, when criticizing settler colonialism in specific. And one of the ways that I think this happens is in this kind of capture of what I just referred to as white Euro-American humanism. It's the both sides matter. It's the benevolent kind of um, approach to thinking about hostages and prisoners and um, defense and all these things that uh, I just fully reject. And I think that it's important that others that are interested in building that common humanity um, reject as well, because it is that which has got us here in the first place. It is that which in 1948 was um, an establishing factor in the Nakba. It was that in 1967 um, that usurped more lands um, the Golan Heights, the West Bank, Gaza, um, and, and it is that where we find ourselves today still in 137 days of an ongoing genocide, which is not just plausible, but indeed um, far developed and underway. Yeah, thanks, Wahike. I think you, you raise a number of really important points. One is the way that what's happening in Gaza today illuminates for everybody what happened in 1948 you know, much better than, than was done before. Another is I love your reference to white Euro-American humanism. You know, I was recently reading a book by um, a Harvard historian called Caroline Elkins looking at precisely the period of the 19th century of the common era in which in London, there were like huge steps made toward more democracy, more inclusiveness, rights for trade unionists, even some rights for women, not a whole lot. But, you know, it, it was, it was just like they were opening everything up, um, politically inside England at the same time that the empire was undertaking these just horrendous, um, genocides worldwide um you know in malaya in in south africa not yet in palestine that came a little bit later but in india and and throughout africa so it, caroline elkins was looking at like you have this white you know in this case anglo humanism where everybody it's more, much more inclusive but it's built on Mm -hmm. the the expropriation and and terrible oppression and genocide of people of color. So right. yeah, thanks for for bringing that home. Can can I come in? Come in, Yusuf, if I don't mind. I just yeah, was yeah, one really interesting thing that that that's that is an undercurrent for me now is because you spoke earlier about how every every time you've mentioned the land, your attachment to to your, to your native land in Hawaii is so clear in in what you've said. Every sentence speaks of that connection. 
And in Ireland, well, we speak about, you know, our connection and we know obviously our own, um, the great hunger that we refer to and and our own famine that took place. But we have our own dark secret as well because we have a a native people that are a traveling community. And the traveling community were the nomadic people who continually, who now have only as far as recently as 2014, I believe it was, been recognized as their own ethnicity within, they have their own language, their own culture. But we continue to, as some of my friends within the traveling community have said to me, build walls around them, but not ne- never put roofs over their heads. Do you find when you talk about that, again, back to that shared struggle, when you view what's happened in the domicide also in Gaza and the taking of land, and then knowing what's happened to the native people of Hawaii, it's almost like, I'm going to say it, it's almost like it's an acceptable racism that's still okay. And and I say that as someone who's Irish, talking about an acceptable racism towards our travelling people that we know as well, that, you know, it's still quite common to think of them as less than within the Irish community. Yeah, I think colonial racism is a transit of empire. Um, it's the site at which, as Jody Bird, great anti-colonial Chickasaw thinker, has written in the aptly titled book, The Transit of Empire. It's a way in which imperialism and its empires uh, proliferate itself by comparing uh, through different forms of racialization under colonial extensions of power, people in racialized dehumanization in, in, in language, in law, in policy. Um, this is how you get Captain James Cook traveling from Britain to measure the transit of Venus and referring to um, American Indians as Indians and then Maori as Indians and then um, Native Hawaiians as Indians. That transit of paradigmatic Indianness was a way in which British exploration and colonialism took root globally. And I think that that's true also for peoples in Ireland, in Palestine, and elsewhere. Um, That form of colonial racialization is in some sense what binds us together under the um, imperial belly of violence that is pervaded um, in this world. And and I do want to say one, one other thing on the point. You know, while structural genocide, as Patrick Wolfe, settler colonial studies scholar, has written, is certainly an applicable way to think about the kind of genocidal violence that Kanaka Maoli have faced, um, there are different degrees and material experiences and histories of um, genocide. And I want to say this very carefully um, as a reminder to myself and other Kanaka Maoli to not collapse what's taking place in Gaza Um, and in uh, the occupied territories in historic Palestine, um, that genocidal history and ongoing um, present with what we've experienced. Um, And that's a nod to Keholani Kawanui and um, her advocacy and work. And and then I want to like shift to think about um, the Native America example and comparison that was just brought up. I have two wonderful comrades from the Red Nation, Melanie Yazi, who's a Navajo feminist um, and professor at the University of Minnesota of American Indian Studies, and um, my my other comrade, Demetrius Johnson, who is an organizer with the Red Nation, also Navajo. They've compared the forcible removal and transfer of Gazans into the South with their own people's forcible removal and transfer from Dene territory or Navajo territory um, into the east, um, Fort Sumner in what's known as um, the Long Walk or the Welde, wherein Navajo people were militarily transferred from their historic lands to a concentration camp in the east, where along the way people died, people starved, um, families were ripped apart from one another, and then allowed to return eventually. My colleagues, Melanie and Demetrius, have viscerally experienced the um, reporting and and what's taking place in Gaza in a way that resonates with their own lives and experiences and families and and their experience, particularly with uh, 
specific form of settler colonialism in um, what is now the United States. Um, thank you for bringing this up. And, and Tony, when you mentioned um, the traveling um, in a community and how they want a roof over their head rather than a wall that separates them from the rest of the society, it reminded me of the concept of being homeless and houseless. And this is also a concept that is being um, discussed in Hawaii, where people say, "I, uh, you know, I cannot feel um, homeless in, in Hawaii because it's my home, but I might, you know, there are people also because of gentrification, um, they're pushed uh, to the streets. There are hundreds of tens of people who do not have uh, housing in, in, in Hawaii, but they're never homeless. Um, I, I want to move a little bit um, back in time to October 7, and you issued a statement and uh, you made a statement, um, you know, that brought uh, some criticism from the quote-unquote uh, liberal media in, in Canada and Toronto. Um, could you please tell us more about this statement and the content of this statement and why do you think you were attacked and whether you change your mind after you were attacked by the media? Yeah, certainly. I'd be happy to say more about this. Um, in in early October, I issued a statement that, in my mind, was specifically and expressly targeting the Native Hawaiian community to see and understand what was going on um, in the breaking free of Gazans from the border wall as a moment to consider for our relationship to Palestinians living under a brutal military occupation. And that was completely bastardized in liberal media, um, but also conservative media as well. And so I've received a lot of um, hate, threats, harassments, including death threats, um, attacks on my employment, uh, research, um, you name it. And um, this has all been a distract distracting tactic, right? To uh, individualize the um, uh, criticism of the Israeli genocide of Palestinians onto someone who is not Palestinian and in a position of power um, at a North American post-secondary institution, but particularly in Toronto and Canada. Um, that wasn't lost on me, and I don't regret what I said. Um, because what I said was important and meaningful and powerful, and that is precisely why it was targeted um, and also used to create a distraction from the genocidal activities perpetrated by the state of Israel on Palestinians in Gaza, but also in the West Bank. Um, so over the course of October, November, December, January, and even now, these threats, these harassments have... Um, muted to some extent uh, because of their um, uh, impotence, really. Nevertheless, uh, in the University of Toronto, they are still present, um, even in my department of political science, which I've come to know and have been told um, also from beyond just the department um, is a space that's been um, historically very friendly to proponents and supporters of Zionism. Um, and this isn't uh, new. And in fact, um, some who have criticized me for my political advocacy publicly have even gone so far as to refer to me as a uh, Nazi apologist for concentration camps and criticized me for even uttering the word Zionism or Zionist on social media. This tells me a lot about how weak and unstable the foundation of Zionism is, but also the foundation and rationale for the project that is the Zionist state of Israel and its perpetuation of itself, even in a time wherein uh, international courts, like the International Court of Justice, has 
ruled that what it is engaged in is plausibly genocidal. This is the crumbling project that is um, Israelism, Zionist settler colonialism, and our resounding collective consciousness to raise our voices and to say something and to be unafraid and unapologetic in advocating for Palestinians and for Palestinian liberation is dangerous. And there is power in knowing that and expressing that despite repercussions. And how can we not in this moment stand up and say something when the stakes are so Can high. Can I just say, on the, I've, I've watched your, your statement, it wasn't apologism, and, and, and yet always, you know, pushing back on settler colonialism is ugly. You know, it, it, gets, it is ugly. It is, it, is, it is violent. It is often, we, I spoke about some of the, 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 the traumas that we've seen on, on, on the island I stand on right now, on the shared island of Ireland, and then how we're still not a united Ireland, even a hundred years after partition. But I want to say one point that, again, um, to still make the conver- make make your statement that you did the in the fullness of time has that has the as you said the impotence of it now in in the through the prism of over thirty thousand people now killed the majority of now women and children have people been more comfortable now and I mean comfortable in a, in a in a in a sense of actually. You know, you were you were you were right when you said it, but now we're more comfortable actually coming to you and saying we 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 at the time we weren't comfortable supporting you. I've had some uh, colleagues locally in my department that have been very supportive um, through and through, um, and I've had uh, a group of senior, more more senior white colleagues that have. Um, not changed their tone in their approach to me. Um, and those that have reached out to me, I've conversed with, and those that haven't um, likely are yeah, yeah. disengaged, um, which is okay for me. Um, but for the most part, across campus and across universities in Toronto um, and across North America, post-secondary institutions, there's a great deal of solidarity amongst non-Palestinian professors and faculty, students that are doing this work. Um, and it's resounding, like I said previously. It's, it's, it's vernacular. It's almost normal. Um, and, and there needs to be more of that, especially to prop up and support our Palestinian colleagues, both faculty and students. Um, this, this can't be about us and our uh, issues with the university. It has to be about um, Palestinians and our solidarity to support their struggles. Um, and I think that's exactly the site at which we can be captured is the will to institutionality, right? The, the, the desire to protect one's job versus the desire to perpetuate freedom for the most vulnerable. I, I, don't, I, I don't know if you saw the, um, the Irish uh, tech entrepreneur, Paul Bigger, who, was, who had re- re- literally raised hundreds of millions of dollars for these tech startups who wrote a blog called I Can't Sleep. Um, and it was because he couldn't sleep mm. watching what was unfolding and was literally lost his job the next day. But Paul, as he said, I interviewed him myself and he said, I come, he's from Dublin, living in New York. He said, but I've made a lot of money in, in, in what I was doing. So when he lost his job, he still had enough money to pay his rent. Um, whereas, and you know, so he, he, he cashed in on some of his privilege, but there are many more, particularly in academia, which has tenuous contracts. It has, you know, you can be on fixed term contracts. Yeah. We call them bogus self-employment here. You know, um, we've all sorts of different ways of talking about it. It's much more difficult because you can literally be within six months, yeah. not be able to keep a roof over your head. Yeah, I think... Um Waikea made some great points about um, universities here in North America. I mean, I came to this country in 1982 after having been in Lebanon for seven years um, covering the civil war there and what was happening to Palestinians in Lebanon. And shortly after I got here, the Israelis um, invaded Lebanon and started bombing the hell out of Beirut. I felt so lonely here in North America because everybody, 
with the exception of a few people who were liberal Republicans, and liberal Republicans don't even exist anymore in this country. But, um, you know, everybody on the left was out there supporting the Israeli army, including Jane Fonda, which really hurt, you know, Hanoi Jane. And there she was going to, to entertain the, um, the Israeli troops. There was also, I did not know this, but at the time there was a, a professor at, I think, um, State University of New York, who was a South African, um, I think he was a philosopher called Fred Dubé. And he was like, he had been in the ANC with, with Nelson Mandela. He had been in prison with Nelson Mandela. And then he was able to come to this country and got a job at the State University of New York. And they hounded him out of the university because he raised questions about Israel and Zionism, you know, and that is happening, you know, ha has happened throughout the decades here in North America. Let's hope it will end. But right now we have a rallying cry for universities worldwide, given the fact that Israel has literally demolished nine or 10 universities in Gaza, along with colleges and schools, but just, you know, setting, um, explosives around the buildings and deliberately demolishing them. This was not, you know, a, a byproduct of war. It was in, in essence, what they were going to war to do was to demolish the universities. So I think universities worldwide need to really pay attention. Absolutely. If we look at what happened to the education system in, in Gaza, we always bragged in Gaza that we have one of the highest um, literacy rates in the Middle East with 98.5% of the population, um, um, you know, being um, able to, to read and, and, and write. And many people were educated uh, in the IT sector and engineering and um, different, you know, social sciences and, and departments. Yusuf, and now can all I share a quick, a quick little story? You know Mazen Hania, um, Zach's son, Mazen. So Mazen, our friend, um, is, yes. is uh, Zach is still in Rafa, but Mazen came back and and started. He was a second year engineering student in Gaza. He, I I was with him at the weekend, and I said, "How's college now?" Because he's gone. They've he started college in in Dublin, and he said to me, "He said." Yeah, I'm, the the maths are a bit basic for me at the moment. His <laughs> his education standard in Gaza. He was he's waiting on 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 them to get to the part where he already is. And I thought to myself, I said, "Of course they are." You a he's a very smart kid, but b education levels in 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 Palestine is treasured and something that that is absolutely uh, central to the community. So so yeah, I think it's really important. But I just I I, I saw the, the evidence with my own eyes at the weekend, and I couldn't stop laughing. I don't know what his lecturer will think of me sharing that though. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Tony, for this witness. I think it's as important as the witnesses and hearings at the ICJ, which we will talk about uh, uh, later in in the podcast uh, uh, today. But again, back to the education system in, in, in Gaza, I saw some um, really important initiatives. The uh, Al-Najah University in the West Bank decided to allow Palestinian students from Gaza to do an exchange semester. Um, but then we have to think about difficulties of internet and electricity and access to online uh, courses. But again, I think it's important that we start a conversation on how can we save uh, what remains of, of the education system in Gaza. Hundreds of schools, uh, honorable schools were also uh, destroyed and the rest are used as shelters today um, by displaced uh, Palestinians. Hundreds of professors, including our friend Rifat al-Ar'ir, um, were killed, intentionally killed by Israel. Um, uh, High-ranking uh, you know, professors well known globally, such as Sufyan Tayyeh, the president of the Islamic University, who has 4,000 uh, citations on Google Scholar, was also killed with his family. Um, so, huge crimes against Palestinians, but specifically targeting the education um, system in, in, in Gaza, which speaks of the importance of this sector and this section for Palestinians. I always remember that my dad would say, you know, I'm ready like to sacrifice everything 
as long as you go to school. Um, so this is our investment as as uh, refugees in, in Gaza. All my siblings went to school. I have uh, 13 siblings uh, uh, from the same mother. Uh, God bless her. She's now with me in Istanbul. And, you know, all of us went to school. All my sisters went to school, uh, including my sister who has um, five children. She did her MA in business administration. Um, at the Islamic University of Gaza, which was also um, destroyed. But, you know, outside, you know, institutional education is, is important. We have to think about ways to challenge um, the current order of, of education to, to help uh, Palestinians in, in Gaza continue, you know, maintain this legacy of, um, you know, very excellent education that they have. Um, I think it's it's very important, equally important. Um, also, when we talk about aid, that we talk about education because this is not an issue of aid. Um, it's man-made, you know, catastrophe. Um, I would like to um, thank our guest uh, for joining us today. It was really like interesting conversation about Hawaii and, and Palestine. Uh, you know, Hawaii has a special, once you go there, it changes you. The same as Gaza changes you. There's something, you know, about Hawaii. Once you go there, you understand the politics, the, um, you know, indigenous um, movement there, it changes you forever. And it changes you the way you look at the world. Um, but also I was um, amazed by the connection, the Kanaka Maoli, had with their land, as um, Tony also pointed, you know, the connection with the land, it reminded me of this picture of Palestinian woman who was trying to hug an olive tree that she planted as Israeli soldiers tried to uproot it. This is the difference between indigenous people and settlers. They cut trees, we never cut them. Even a friend of mine, Sarah Ali, in Gaza Rice Pack, she said, if I was, you know, the driver of a bulldozer, I would never uproot and uh, a tree and Israeli planted. You know, th this is like a red line, but again, they never understand um, these things and these uh, connections. Thank you very much uh, for, for joining us uh, today. We will continue the conversation with Tony and Helena. From the river to the sea, from the river to the sea, from the river to the sea. From the river to the sea, from the river So today the International Court of Justice started a nine-day uh, hearing sessions about Israel's occupation of Palestine, the illegality of this occupation that started in 1967. And I'm sure everyone uh, in, in this debate, in this conversation here today disagrees that the occupation of Palestine started in 1967. It was a continuation of an occupation and settler colonialism and ethnic cleansing that started in 1948. But I still believe, and I think many of you um, agree with me, that it's an important debate and conversation on Palestine that we get to see other countries harshly criticizing Israel and South Africa bringing Israel to the ICJ accusing it of, uh, you know, perpetuating genocide against Palestinians in Gaza. This is an important development and it's not enough, but it's a good start. Um, so today I uh, had actually um, Sol Takahashi, who we hosted, and we were um, watching Al Jazeera and the live stream of uh, the sessions and uh, we were able to listen to what the representative of, of Algeria, Saudi Arabia, um, the Netherlands and South Africa um, said. And again, the representative of Palestine, as Helena pointed out to me, was given three hours. This is uh, very interesting and, and important. Um, the conversation on, on Rafah, even the ICJ earlier um, issued a statement, although it was not satisfactory to me it didn't order an immediate hold to aggression against palestinians in gaza and specifically the city of rafah they said we have already asked israel to stop all forms of hostilities and 
that endangered Palestinians in our previous ruling. So they repeated their previous ruling. And I think this is uh, important. What What do you think, Helena? Um, well, I think that we have the two cases at the ICJ right now, which is fascinating because, you know, having them both come together. So the first one was the one which was a, a dispute, a conflict between South Africa and Israel, and it was brought by South Africa, as we know, very brilliantly back in January. And then we got the ruling on January 26th. And one of the important parts of that ruling is that Israel is obligated to come back within a month to report on what it has done to um, implement the rulings of the court. So this is going to be carrying on and carrying on. And of course, some people were, were disappointed that that ruling did not call for a ceasefire. Actually, it couldn't because a ceasefire has to be between the two warring parties. And this this was not a dispute between the two warring parties. It was a dispute between Israel and South Africa. Um, Hamas was not involved. Palestinians were not involved, except as the subject of the rulings, but not as parties. So then suddenly this other case, which has you know been waiting in the wings in the International Court of Justice for, I think, three or four years, it, it is since the UN General Assembly referred this case about the legality of the occupations of 1967. To the, to the court for an advisory ruling. Now, Palestinians are quite right to understand that an advisory ruling doesn't count for anything. You already have the advisory ruling on the legality of the apartheid wall inside the West Bank, um, which made not one iota of difference to the Israelis' pursuit of that wall, which goes deep into um, the occupied territory, the territory occupied in 1967. But actually having this discussion at The Hague right now is really important because it helps inform the world about what is happening in Gaza and about the illegality of everything that Israel is doing in Gaza. You know, here in the United States, our government claims that what Israel is doing is self-defense, well, actually, you know, a, a country that is occupying another country, a country that is in military occupation of another country, has no right of self-defense in that occupied territory. For example, like under the Nazi occupation of, of France, the French resistance had every right to resist using all means necessary, which included, you know, military action against the German occupiers. That's international law. So I think having these things, you know, constantly up there and reiterated and on the front pages of the newspaper is really important, even though we're not going to get, you know, the liberation of Palestine from the International Court of Justice in The Hague. The liberation of Palestine will come from the, the heroic resistance and Samud, the steadfastness of the people of Gaza and, and the West Bank, and from the support and the solidarity that we can give them from around the world, and from the crumbling of the Zionist whole structure of lies that they have visited on the world from 1917, from the days of Lord Balfour and his stupid declaration, until today. So, you know, we're seeing all this happening in real time in front of us. And it, it is just a terrible, terrible tragedy that is befalling the people of Gaza practically before our eyes. And, you know, I, I just want to send a big hug to Yusuf and to all my Gaza Palestinian friends, because I know that you see this in a way that tears at your heart in a way that, it, it you know, is, is impossible to think about. But these kind of genocides have happened throughout history, and a lot of people have been able to survive them and build, rebuild their lives on the basis of national independence. Um, I hope that the International Court of Justice can help to make this happen. Absolutely. You know, what is happening in, in, in Gaza is heartbreaking because Gaza is my home, and I grew up there and 
uh, when I watch TV and now I have a screen of, in front of me and I see thousands of starved Palestinians, some of them lost their lives um, over the past two, three weeks because of starvation and lack of food in the north of Gaza, trying to get sacks of flour and being shot at, and some of them were killed by the Israeli military. And they did that repeatedly. The genocide is still going on in my refugee camp in Nusayarat. They bombed five houses at the same time two days ago. Um, today and yesterday, they killed seven and 12 people. They targeted um, an entire residential building. And now they're saying, we are starting another military incursion into the neighborhood of, of uh, Zaytun, and it will continue for a few weeks. They're not done. They said, well, we, we took control of Gaza, of the, no the north of Gaza, a few weeks ago. But now they're starting another military campaign, targeting people, killing people, bombing people in the north of Gaza. You know, they it didn't work. Like bombing didn't work. Starvation was also used. And now they're using both bombing and starvation at the same time. Um, but then we have some, you know, good initiatives. Um, finally, at the UN Security Council, we have um, a draft resolution that will be pushed by Algeria calling for a ceasefire in Gaza, which is which should not be controversial. But then we have an amazing country called the United States of America <laughs> uh, that is willing, and they said we're going to veto for the third time the you know a resolution that calls for a ceasefire in Gaza. Not only this, they are trying to introduce another resolution that calls for a humanitarian pose again, sending more aid to Palestinians. What they send weapons without, you know, control to Israel, even without congressional approval. So, so Wahikea, I, I guess that, like me, you're a citizen of this fine United States of America. Um, what do you think about um, the chances that the International Court of Justice or the UN Security Council can actually? help our friends in Palestine to, to get their, their national liberation? The current order of political things in that regard does not seem to bode well, in my opinion. And I think this is the deceit of the international world order um, as it's been trend in the UN system. And the truth of the matter is, unfortunately, there is no way to enforce ICJ rulings. Um, but like you said, Helena, this is, however, important for the kind of public pressure that that can be conveyed and mobilized for political purposes by the people and also by states that are willing to do something about it. Algeria, South Africa, um, the Netherlands ruling against shipping equipment for F um 35 fighters to Israel. Right? Those are the kinds of things that do give me hope. But in the structure and system itself, you know, as Yusuf is saying, um, the promise of a veto by the United States is omnipresent. And to my mind, then the irony is, does that not contravene the rule by the ICJ on January 26th to have state parties ensure that their actions are preventing genocide. I and think you're. I think you're quite right there. Like there is now some pressure, legally and politically, internationally, on on the U.S. government to comply with with the January sixth ruling. Um, I think you know. I sit here in Washington D.C. <laughs> for my sins, which must have been many in a, in an earlier life. I think the. Uh, Administration here is very reluctant to cast another veto. So mm. let's wait and see what happens. There may be a vote today. Today is Tuesday. Um, what's the date? Mm -hmm. Tuesday, the 20th of February. Um, maybe we'll get, we'll get a veto. And I, but if there is a veto, then I think that will be disastrous for the United States worldwide. I mean, if you look and see the kind of support that that Palestinians in Gaza are getting from throughout the whole of the global majority, um, what used to be called the global South, but you know, 
and and let's let's hope that enough pressure can be brought to bear that the US veto either doesn't count or or could be countermanded by robust action by the United Nations to send in what the people of Gaza so desperately need, like housing, hospitals, schools, but you know the basics of everyday life. The Indonesian government has a hospital ship waiting off Gaza. You know, there are all kinds of ships in the in the Mediterranean that could deliver the um, the prefabricated housing, for example, that the Hamas um, statement called for. And the the desalination plants, everything that you need just to save the lives of Yusuf's relatives and friends and our friends in Gaza. Uh, absolutely. Thank you very much um, for, for the comments. And just uh, a reminder before we conclude, I will I will jump to to. Tony, but I um because he has a few words to to to, to say and an announcement probably to, to, to make. Um in, in the past ten days, only nine trucks of aid made it to Gaza. In ten days, nine trucks before October seven, five hundred trucks would make it to Gaza on daily basis. Yeah, and just about those trucks, we've seen that there are settler extremists in Israel who are blocking the trucks and the army and, and, and the police allow them to do that. So Israel is actually obligated by the January 26th ruling to allow aid to go into Gaza. They're not. They're just cooperating with these settler extremists who are blocking the aid. The idea that you can actually generate a a sort of not exactly a popular movement, but a fairly broad movement amongst people to to cooperate in the starvation of your neighbors. It just boggles the mind that people can be so cruel and so depraved. Just just one 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 last word, Tony. Um, this doesn't surprise me because Israeli settlers in the past had barbecue parties in the front of Israel, Israel prisons where Palestinian hunger strikers were held. Um, I, I spoke to, I don't know if you heard the interview I did with um, um, Mahmoud Mushtaha, the young Gazan journalist recently, who, um, when we were just talking about how bad it was, he said, if the bombs don't kill me, um, starvation will. And he is eating animal feed. And his, his, the way he said it to me was, bro, it's just so bad, you know, and um, I wasn't I wasn't in a better place after having the conversation. I will say, you know, we've we have been through the work we've been doing here. We have been getting some aid, essential items and cash into the pockets of people in Rafa. Uh, we've done it very successfully. We've seen care packages being delivered to people in, in tents. We've seen children receiving nappies and infant formula. We've been managing to do it. Um, and it's because of the great people who continue to, in the Palestinian diaspora, outside of outside of Gaza, who are working with, with our friends inside Gaza to, to, to work around these systems and while and it's really heartening to see it, and if anybody's interested, there will be a link in the bottom of the podcast. So please click on the link, and you'll you'll see more details about that there. And one final thing is, Spain and Ireland have written to the EU to say that we believe Israel is in breach of our trade treaties because obviously trade comes with certain human rights obligations as well. Uh, whether or not I'm a big believer in how how much progress it'll make, it all. It's all just chip, 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 chipping away at the Zionist project, and hopefully um, it will crack. Thank you very much um, to our guest, Oakia, uh, who joined us from Toronto, and it was a very interesting conversation on Hawaii, Palestine, the ICJ, um, and the um, Security Council uh, I would like to um, remind our listeners that we recorded um, this, uh, you know, podcast uh, series on uh, February 20, 5 p.m. Um, Istanbul time. I would like also to uh, retreat our position uh, calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. And uh, I would like to thank our co-sponsors, the Hashem Sani Center for Palestine um, Studies uh, at the University of Malaya in, in, in Malaysia. And um, looking forward to carrying on this conversation, we will be having one 
episode a week now on and hopefully more guests uh, uh, on the uh, podcast palcast one word one struggle if i must die you must live to tell my story to sell my things to buy a piece of clouds and some strings make it white with a long tail so that a child Is a cat.